Welcome to episode 84 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. You've already heard the biggest change of the week. Uh, uh, we have new theme music uh, uh, brought to us uh, by Jason Weinstein's son, uh, uh, who arranged it uh, uh, and who won the uh, uh, the balloting uh, for uh, uh, best uh, theme music. So congratulations, Jason. Thank you. Now he'll be impossible to deal with. He'll be like any musician and artist. Yes, temperamental and, and, uh, and house, demanding. Yes, exactly. Well, we don't have a contract with him. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe we need one. Uh, and uh, uh, he did say he would take his um, uh, royalties and ice cream. So that's our best uh, hope that he, there's just a limit on how much he can actually eat. Although there's not. Although his brother slash manager wants him to renegotiate. <laughs> Too late. Uh, this is a law firm. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for everybody who uh, participated in the vote. It was great to uh, to have the uh, uh, participation of our uh, listeners in this. Uh, uh, and on to our uh, usual program. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm joined today by our guest commentator, Jack Goldsmith. Uh, Jack's an old friend, a professor at Harvard Law, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at the at Stanford University, co-founder of of one of my favorite blogs, the Lawfare blog. Uh, before he went to Harvard, uh, he was assistant attorney general in the Office of Legal Counsel and special counsel to the Department of Defense uh, and famous for walking back some of the more aggressive legal interpretations uh, from immediately after uh, uh, 9-11. Uh, uh, welcome, Jack. Thank you. Very nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, also here, uh, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, uh, Jason Weinstein, uh, formerly with the Justice Department, where he oversaw both criminal computer crime prosecutions and other uh, uh, topics, and is now doing uh, both criminal and civil litigation at Steptoe and back, jet lag from Abu Dhabi. Yes. Well, uh, that is, it's not hard to get jet lag doing that. Uh, although they did get you a, 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 a lie flat, uh, uh, birth, didn't they? They did. Uh, and Maury Schenk, former managing partner at Steptoe's London office, who's now advising Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues. He's also a private equity investor and a director of technology companies. Welcome, Maury. Good to be here, Stuart. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the record holder for returning to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. So let's get started. The big news, uh, uh, in fact, I'm kind of amazed that it's um, it, it's still news, but this is uh, since the last podcast, uh, uh, the European Court of Justice has ruled on the safe harbor. Uh, um, a, and if you remember the last time we were talking about whether they would follow the um, aggressive rule ruling of Eve Bott, uh, the uh, uh, advisor to the uh, uh, Court of Justice. Turns out uh, they didn't follow him because they wanted to be even more aggressive. Uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, can you summarize what the European Court of Justice did? Yeah, I, I can, although I don't think they were more aggressive. I, I'm not sure. Uh, I guess you can tell me what your thoughts are on that. But um, they, they agreed with the uh, advisory uh, opinion in the sense that their final outcome was to invalidate the uh, the safe harbor. Um, but I thought it was actually a, a much better reasoned and narrower decision than the advisory opinion because, uh, first, they said national, national data protection authorities cannot just uh, reach a decision on their own that a commission decision 
that a, a non-EU country provides adequate protection uh, is somehow invalid. They can raise the issue with national courts. They can investigate. If they think there's a problem, they can they can bring it to the national courts. And the national courts, if they agree that a, a country is not providing adequate, adequate protection, they can refer the issue to the ECJ. But only the ECJ can uh, determine that a commission decision that a country provides adequate protection is is somehow invalid. Uh, so that in that sense, I think it's much narrower than the uh, advisory opinion, and that's important for Safe Harbor 2.0 if we get to that place, because it means that, in fact, every uh, national data protection authority cannot just invalidate safe, a Safe Harbor 2.0 on his or her own, uh, but they can they can investigate and raise it up the chain. Uh, and secondly, on the um, on the issue of invalidation, the, the advisory opinion basically said, look, there's all this r- reporting out there about uh, the prison program and and the the lack of um, uh, privacy protections in U.S. surveillance practices. Um, you know, I think those things render the U.S. inadequate in terms of the protection it gives. And I think the the if you read it closely, the ECJ opinion is narrower than that. It it cites some of the same concerns. But ultimately, it says that the commission, when it when it created the safe harbor, it didn't make the findings that are required by the data protection directive. It didn't go through U.S. law and explain why the U.S. law provides uh, adequate protection. All it did was say if companies in the U.S. sign up to the safe harbor and agree to abide by these principles, then they provide adequate protection. Uh, and so, again, I think the commission, if it wants to come back with, with Safe Harbor 2.0, can make the requisite findings about U.S. law. Um, yeah, but presumably uh, with some changes in U.S. law, but even without changes, I think there, I think there's a roadmap there for the commission to establish another Safe Harbor and have it pass muster. I, I, I take your point, but uh, the, the very specificity of the objections that they raised to U.S. law, and they, 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 they sort of set a bar for things that the U.S. law needs to do, that I'm not sure U.S. law can comfortably be uh, interpreted as doing. Uh, the idea that you have to be able, that Europeans have to be able to uh, see the data that's stored about them and bring lawsuits to contest the uh, collection of that data, um, it's it not clear to me that uh, anybody can just do that uh, under U.S. law. No. Uh, so I, in, in their specificity, I think they, they created bars that are going to be very hard to negotiate around. Yes, um, but what's crucial is that they also say that a finding of adequate protection means that the country provides essentially equivalent protection uh, as is afforded in the EU. So I think you could easily turn around and say, look, these specific things that they say are necessary, they're not provided in the EU either. You can't go to the French intelligence service and say, show me the information you have about me. So I think you can make a case that U.S. law provides at least equivalent protections in all of these areas, if not superior to what's available in the EU, and thereby make a showing of equivalency, because that ultimately is the bottom line. Is the protection equivalent in in, in some form to what's available in the EU? So that raises the question, then, uh, are we going to get Safe Harbor 2.0? Uh, and I know there's uh, there's real interest in doing that, uh, uh, ironically, I, I'm willing to bet the commission is at least as interested as the U.S. government in doing that in, in an effort to recapture the 
power that dwindled away uh, under this ruling and was uh, handed off to the data protection authorities and the national courts. Uh, um, uh, Maury, uh, what's the prospect for uh, Safe Harbor 2.0? Because uh, every day that we go without one is a day that people go find other mechanisms to make sure they can still move data around. Well, I think it remains uncertain. I would say before I answer the specific question, there's an immediate question about a grace period. And legally, there is no grace period. The ECJ said the safe harbor is invalid. But lots of people are talking, a lot of national data protection authorities in particular are talking about practical grace periods. Um, the UK Information Commissioner has been specific about that, and that would be essentially suspension of enforcement. And there's a, a lot of the initial talk is around there. Uh, people don't know exactly what the US and EU were negotiating, but presumably those negotiations will continue, and there is a prospect. But I think, as you were just saying, Stuart, this decision makes that a lot more difficult One additional area beyond what you just mentioned where I think it's difficult is jurisdiction. One of the key things the safe harbor did was take jurisdiction over U.S. companies and put it in the hands of the FTC, which, of course, the FTC has. Uh, And that, in principle, could remain uh, because in any other country that's found adequate, its national authorities have jurisdiction. But I think because of the heavy focus of this decision on the jurisdiction of EU data protection authorities, that will be a tougher nut to crack. So that the EU data protection authorities will retain some kind of authority to investigate and make findings about U.S. national security programs? Well, retain some kind of enforcement authority over... Um, ah. The particular data transfers, which in turn could mean looking into that. Um, so that, there is an option under the safe harbor of accepting the jurisdiction of EU data protection authorities under the model contract clauses, uh, which is a, a remaining option in the absence of the safe harbor. You effectively have to do that. And I think the safe, the safe harbor 2.0, if it exists, may take a, a more of a latter approach to jurisdiction, less deference to the FTC and Safe Harbor One. Mm-hmm. Which means, I suppose, that uh, the Safe Harbor looks a lot less appealing to uh, companies than just going through the model clauses or the binding corporate rules. Yeah, that's absolutely. I mean, we can talk a little bit about what the other alternatives are, and the, al- the alternatives currently are a lot less practical for many companies than the Safe Harbor is. I don't think it's likely we're going to end up with anything that's quite as easy for U.S. companies as the as the safe harbor that was. I think that's probably right. Uh, um, on the other hand, uh, frankly, the safe harbor safe harbor 2.0 is going to get litigated too, uh, and uh, uh, it's it's like it's like putting a kick me sign on your back to announce that you're going to be complying with the safe harbor. Uh, it, it's it's a swear word in, in Europe, and it will be for a long time, whereas if you just go do the model clauses and the binding corporate rules, you look just like um, the Siemens or British Aerospace. Yes, I think safe harbor 2.0 is going to be litigated as well. The entire structure of the safe harbor is a little bit unusual under the data protection directive, which says that a whole country's data protection law will be declared adequate. In the case of the United States, 
it's pretty clear the European Commission won't find U.S. data protection laws a whole adequate. And something like the safe harbor that makes it adequate for a limited set of companies could be controversial. So I think we're some distance from a safe harbor 2.0 that's legally robust. So you know what would be fun? I, I, there's, there's, there's only half a dozen countries that have adequacy uh, rulings, and most of them don't matter, Andorra, Monaco, Liechtenstein, uh, places like that. Uh, so the only real countries, if I remember right, that have adequacy determinations are Canada, uh, Uruguay, and Argentina. Um, and if that's, if, if, if that's the case, I'm willing to bet that uh, human rights vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, intercepts and intelligence collection is not better in Argentina than in the United States. Uh, maybe we should launch lawsuits to declare invalid all of those, and then it will be impossible for the Europeans ever to reach adequacy determinations about countries that matter. Well, you have a different idea of fun than I do, Stuart. <laughs> but, um... I, I mean, there's, there's no way they survive it unless... They don't have laws at all that describe their intelligence collection. Yeah, I, well, uh, there's the trouble with the U.S. is it's so big, and there's evidence of these programs. So I think that somebody might find that relevant. And the laws on the books on those country in those countries, although I don't know them in detail, I think resemble the European model a little bit more. But it's it's an interesting point. Yeah. It, it, well. It, well, well, go ahead. The, the other the other thing I think your point raises is that um, the, the alternatives that people are talking about and that have always been available, uh, such as uh, adopting model uh, contract clauses or instituting binding corporate rules, um, I don't see how those things actually provide adequate protection if you're if you're talking about the data going to the U.S. Because a company that has binding corporate rules or the model contract clauses still going to be susceptible to the same demands from the U.S. government, and it's still going to have to turn the data over uh, in situations that EU officials may not like, regardless of what their contract clauses say or regardless of what their internal corporate rules say. I mean, you can't, you can have a, a binding corporate rule that says we're never going to give the U.S. government your data, you know, unless there's a an individualized search warrant. Um, you can have that, but that's not going to withstand uh, – a, a court order to turn over the data. So I don't understand that the whole premise that these other means provide adequate protection, even if the safe harbor doesn't, seems very dubious to me. Uh, and and which means that uh, you're always at risk as an individual company and in having uh, the government, the, the the data protection authority, show up and say, "We're not sure anymore. You can do this because of our doubts about what's going on in the United States with your data or generally with data." Um, uh, but you know, I don't know anybody who actually thinks they're fully in compliance with the um, uh, data protection directive as interpreted by the data protection uh, uh, agencies, because uh, you know they they've they've set it up so you really can't live in the modern world and actually comply. So this is just one more uh, one more compliance failure that you're at risk of. Just as a little postscript, um, another uh, element of unreality in all this. The Department of Commerce has issued a, a statement or posted a statement saying that the 
Safe Harbor has been declared invalid, but we're still administering it. So go ahead and, and get your certifications renewed and <laughs> with no explanation of what, what this means, why they're doing it. Yeah, this but although it, it does make sense that, you know, if you're going to give people a, um, a, a grace period for enforcement, you don't want to give it to people who were never relying on the safe harbor. So you, uh, you can imagine the data protection authorities saying this is only for people who are, uh, inside the, the safe harbor and complying with it. Uh, if you're not complying with it, you're not going to get the benefit of our, uh, uh, uh holiday from enforcement. Yeah, no, it doesn't I make sense there. It'd, it'd be nice if they explain that to people, um, because you know I've gotten calls of people just uh, scratching their head, saying, "What, what in the world does this mean?" Maury? Well, it's also a privacy. Um, you know, it's, it, at, at a minimum, it's sort of a privacy seal of approval. The safe harbor includes certain privacy principles, and I think that immediately because the Europeans have declared it invalid. All right. Well, uh, stay tuned as as always uh, with these things. Uh, the uh, the Europeans like having the issue maybe more than they like actually uh, imposing the uh, the rules and having clarity. Uh, so I expect we've got. Uh, years of uncertainty ahead, uh, um, which means that um, data protection authorities will be taken to dinner for uh, a decade to come just to keep them sweet. All right. Uh, uh, there's been a another Computer Fraud and Abuse Act uh, prosecution and conviction this time, and predictably, uh, there's like it's like a playbook has been written. Uh, uh, it turns out that the guy who's been found guilty is a civil liberties hero. Uh, uh, Jason, uh, can you tell us why? <laughs> that, that is indeed a shocking uh, twist on the story, although there is one actual twist on the story, which is how the civil liberties community is retaliating or seeking to retaliate for the conviction. So the, the guy who was convicted is Matthew Keyes, who used to be a local TV journalist in Sacramento and then later worked for Reuters. And he was convicted in federal court in California of conspiring to help Anonymous hack into the website of the LA Times and alter the content of an article. So he was convicted on various flavors of uh, 18 U.S.C. 1030. Uh, and the, the, the essence of the charges were that he provided login credentials to Anonymous so that they could access the website change an article, uh, the, the, the defacement was detected fairly quickly and the article was corrected or taken down. Um, the news is reporting that as a result of his conviction, he faces a very long sentence. That's not correct at all. As, as you know, the statutory maximum means almost nothing in a case like this, mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with a person with little or no criminal history. Um, depending on how the government uh, is, uh, is able to persuade the court to calculate loss or damage, he could be looking at as little as zero to six months with probation as an option or a, a relatively short sentence. But the sentence aside, uh, the reaction to the conviction has been predictable in that people are decrying it as yet another abuse of the CFAA, and they're invoking the... Uh, he's a martyred journalist. He's a martyred journalist, which is kind of hard to do. Um, <laughs> Pretty Considering that the object of his attack was like a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, in this CFA world, uh, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So... Um, but the bizarre twist in the story comes courtesy of Andrew Arnheimer, another CFA conviction veteran, whose conviction was overturned because the uh, Third Circuit said it shouldn't have been, the case shouldn't have been brought in New Jersey. Um, he's known uh, on the web as Weave, and his conviction uh, later overturned was based on uh, sharing over 100,000 email addresses of uh, iPad users, including the then Attorney General. Um, and he is still pissed off about it. Um, 
uh, and he sent an open letter to the U.S. Attorney in New Jersey saying that he would reveal the names of DOJ personnel who were on the Ashley Madison website. Um, and he, he claimed that a number of the people from DOJ who were using Ashley Madison were doing so using taxpayer resources, meaning on their work computers, during work hours, and in he's, their offices. I, I, I take it what he's doing is he's doing he's looking up the IP addresses, finding usdoj.gov uh, um, IP addresses and saying, well, this guy was logging on from the Justice Department. Exactly. And, and he has uh, promised to post the information on a site called gotnews.com. And he did reportedly uh, release his first name, which was for a line prosecutor in New York, who, as far as I know, had nothing to do with either his prosecution or the Keys prosecution. Um, and I believe uh, – I saw some reporting that he had done something similar after the hack of a site called Adult Friend Finder, um, releasing government employees, not limited to DOJ, but but federal government employees uh, who were using that site. Uh, you know, it goes without saying, reasonable people can disagree about the proper use of the CFAA, and I understand the anger of a person who believes – that, you know, disagrees with the decision to prosecute them. There are certainly people I prosecuted who, if they saluted me on the street, would only use one finger. But, <laughs> um, but it is, it's absurd that, you know, to trample on the reputations of people, whether or not they had anything to do with the prosecution, who were just public servants doing their job in good faith is, you know, beyond well, inappropriate. Misusing, uh, the computer resources of the department. Well, they're, they're con- if, they, if that's the case, there are consequences for them through legitimate processes, not through having their reputations trampled on. Yeah, although uh, this is this information is already out there. It's just right. a question of Who whether you bother to it. go looking yeah. for it. Uh, uh, and, you know, if you're organized crime or the uh, FSB, you probably are already saying, well, who who do we can we find on here that we could uh, blackmail? And certainly if I was within the government, DOJ or other parts of the government, I would be looking at that data, too, because I'd want to find out where my security risks potentially are. All right. Um, DOD, uh, speaking of security risks, DOD has been gradually tightening the rules for security for government contractors, and they have a whole new set of rules out uh, uh, that are uh, uh, attracting comment uh, and uh, um, uh, raising concerns in the uh, defense contractor community. Uh, uh, Michael, did you look at those? Yeah, this is a new interim a new interim final rule, uh, uh, which, is, by the way, is a phrase I love. Only in only in the government can use use such a phrase of interim final. Oh, uh, hey, listen, as a former regulator, there's nothing I loved better than going interim final because by the time you got a lawsuit saying you didn't take comment, you've already collected the comment. That's right. That's right. Um, that's right. So comments are available, but but this, uh, until December first, I think. Um, but anyway, this, this new rule follows up on a, on a previous uh, defense federal acquisition uh, regulation amendment, um, and this one requires DOD contractors and subcontractors to uh, rapidly report any cyber incidents that result in an actual or a potential adverse effect on uh, defense information, on covered contractor information uh, uh, that it gets from the Defense Department um or to their systems if it, if it could affect the system or the contractor's ability to provide operationally critical support to DOD. So if I remember right, they did this a couple of years ago, and they're sort of tweaking this by adding in new kinds of covered data and uh, requiring the subcontractors to report directly uh, as opposed to to their uh, contracting, uh, uh, you know, their, their contractor, stuff like that. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, and it's, it's interesting uh, to think about whether, you know, this is going to pro- provide a model for other agencies, um, for other government contractors. 
uh, you know, it's not logically, it's, I don't see why it should be limited to DOD. No, I, uh, I, if you're concerned I, about. I, I'm with you. I, I, it seems to me that, uh, this is a, you know, I've always assumed you just couldn't possibly regulate cybersecurity because the what you needed to do was always moving faster than the regulatory process. But it's pretty clear that uh, DOD has committed to saying we can't just say, oh, yeah, do the right thing. We have to tell people exactly what we expect of them. And so they're. Uh, they're coming up with these rules and then they're, uh, um, they're giving people a little extra time if they think they need it. I think they, the, the two-factor authentication rule that, uh, was part of the NIST standard that they, uh, incorporated, uh, they decided to give people nine months to comply with. Uh, so this is really a, a, a workout for the old command and control regulation approach to cybersecurity. Yeah, with, with, but it, uh, under the umbrella of, you know, the California data breach notification model, that that's really the, the gist of it, um, uh, at least in this latest ruling. It's, it's a reporting obligation more than anything else. Yeah, they, they, did, they, did, they did pick up a new standard from NIST. They had incorporated one NIST standard, right. and they, they rewrote it to deal with contractors. So they are trying to come up with substantive uh, requirements, like two-factor authentication for sysadmins and things of that sort. Uh, you know, it... Uh, whether it will work, whether whether DOD can really write regs fast enough to uh, protect its uh, uh, its networks or its contractors' networks remains to be seen. Uh, I thought the most interesting thing here was they also said, "Oh yeah, if you're going to use the cloud, you're going to store that data in the United States." I mean, they should have called the ECJ and told them, uh, uh, you know, you can't, you really can't let your data leave if you want to protect it. Yeah, no, it, that's. It's proof that uh, everybody on on every end of the uh, spectrum in one issue ends up having the same position as their adversaries on a different issue. Yep. Uh, well, well, I'm going to talk to Jack about that when we finish up uh, here, which we ought to do uh, quickly. Uh, uh, one other case, uh, the Target uh, uh, case has grown much bigger, and it's going to be easier to hit the bullseye, I guess, uh, uh, because uh, the banks are approved to bring a class action for all of the cards they had to reissue, right? Yeah, and this is one of the first times that a, a class of banks has been certified in a data breach. Well, duh, yeah. It's a huge <laughs> case. Uh, this, is, this is perhaps the most significant legal development to come out of the the post-target, post-breach litigation in Target. Banks uh, as plaintiffs and, and Bank, using all the tools. Yeah, with, you know, no standing issue, uh, you know, uh, damages that we calculated in, in, with lots and lots of zeros. So the, the federal court in Minnesota that's overseeing the, all the Target, uh, litigation has certified a class that is composed of hundreds of banks and credit unions, uh, stemming from the breach in 2013. The losses, as you would expect, are from card replacement, making good fraud losses and some other expenses. Target had made a, a, a good run at trying to convince the court that the individual issues predominated over the, over the, the, the common issues and that the difficulty of calculating loss uh, on a bank-by-bank level made a cla- class treatment inappropriate. The court rejected that wholeheartedly, said that the issues common to the class predominated, that there was uh, evidence to support a class-wide determination of loss, and that even if there were some individual variations, it, the class treatment was appropriate. So this is uh, groundbreaking, and this is something that I think you will see as part of the playbook in every 
uh, every retailer breach or every breach that affects financial institutions going forward. So if I were the Chamber of Commerce, I'd be shaking in my boots now because all my class action reform uh, uh, proposals are going to run right into a financial industry buzzsaw. Yeah, that's right. It's, 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 that's right. It, it, it is uh, ironic indeed. Uh, okay, uh, just other uh, uh, quick news. Judge Leon uh, continues his embarrassing stumping after the white whale, you know, of, of uh, the Section 215 program, uh, uh, basically saying to the government, you can't let this program die until I kill it. Uh, and uh, we're just... Uh, uh, just watching him, uh, seeing whether he can actually uh, get a case in front of him and a, an opinion out by the 27th of November. Uh, uh, the White House uh, uh, has announced a policy on encryption that is that they're not going to ask for legislation. You know, the most totally anodyne and expected decision you could have gotten from the White House. They had a they had a uh, an options memo that was three variations on let's not do anything, uh, and uh, the decision was let's not do anything. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, so. <laughs> exactly, shocking. <laughs> All right, uh, and um, Chinese hackers were. Uh, uh, arrested in China at the request of the United States. This something that wasn't much advertised at the time of the uh, um, uh, the summit, but this is only the second time that that's happened. It, it did happen once earlier at, at NASA's request. Uh, uh, so that's an interesting straw in the wind about uh, the possibility of cooperation. Uh, uh, oh, and finally, uh, uh, Coke had uh, a kind of litigation... Uh, I guess a mixed result in a breach case of its own, right? Uh, this was employee data, if I remember right. Yeah, it was employee data involving uh, the theft of 55 laptops, which had data of about 74,000 people, stolen by a, another employee. This wasn't a hack. Oh, this God. was a theft okay. by one employee. And uh, and and another uh, one former employee is kind of leading the charge, trying to get a class certified of people who suffered uh, identity theft. The court uh, rejected Koch's motion to dismiss all of the claims, dismissed six of them, and upheld three of them, and, and importantly said that the plaintiff had standing. He had actual harm that was reasonably traceable to the breach, and, and, and his future harm that he complained of was not speculative. Um, upheld the claims for breach of contract and unjust enrichment. Interestingly, the, 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 the gist of the breach of contract claim is that the employment contract between the employee and former employee and Koch included a promise to keep his data safe. He agreed to keep their stuff safe, and they agreed to keep his stuff safe, uh-huh. uh, which okay. I thought was an interesting twist on, on breach of contract. A lawyer who wrote that, uh, trying to be even-handed, has probably been fired. <laughs> <laughs> he may, and, and may have had his stuff stolen. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see whether it's, uh, uh, you and I were emailing about this this morning, whether it's possible to treat this as a class action, given um, that there are some unique issues with individual employees. But if there are, other employees in the group of 74,000 who suffered similar identity theft, I think Coke could be looking at the staring down the barrel of certification. But if they're still employed, uh, joining this class might not be the most uh, uh, career-enhancing yeah, move. It might be a career-limiting move, as they yeah. say. All right. Uh, well, uh, uh, thanks to everybody for the news roundup. I want to turn now to our conversation with uh, with Jack Goldsmith. Uh, Jack has been uh, one of the most thoughtful and informed uh, uh, commentators on cyber international law issues coming out of his uh, 
uh, deep familiarity with international law. Uh, and uh, so I thought I'd, I'd just start out by asking uh, Jack uh, what you thought of the um, Obama-Xi agreement that uh, uh, cyber espionage aimed at commercial secrets is to be condemned. Uh, is this a, a victory for the United States or something else? Um, it's very hard to say because it's not clear what will follow from it, but it was a little surprising in the buildup um, that the Chinese basically accepted precisely in precise terms the norm as the United States has stated it, which is no state-sponsored or state-permitted theft of commercial secrets for purposes of aiding one of your own companies. And the Chinese president did accept that. Um, the president was skeptical that it would mean anything in his press conference, and um, D&I Clapper was skeptical the following week whether anything would follow from it, but the commentators sure liked it a lot and thought it was an important step. Yeah, I, I, I talked to Jim Lewis uh, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he said, yeah, he, he thought that uh, she sold out uh, the PLA on that, uh, in part because um, the PLA had been so profoundly embarrassed by the indictments of the six PLA members, that it, uh, it subjected them to ridicule in the interagency and on the world stage, suggested their tradecraft was bad, which certainly it is, um, and, uh, uh, and, and also that there was a significant crony espionage problem in the uh, 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 People's Liberation Army that uh, some of the uh, commercial uh, uh, espionage that's going on may not really be for the government, but uh, for the pocketbooks of the generals who are overseeing the uh, uh, extraction of the information. And That might be so, and there may certainly be an element of that. I, I can't assess that because I just don't know what's going on inside China well enough at that level. I'm just still a little skeptical about it. The Chinese have always, for years and years, denied that they even engage in cyber, cyber theft of any sort. And they've always said that they're against it and want to crack down on it. And so accepting the U.S. terms by itself doesn't say much, especially since the terms are so – they're still pretty open-ended um, right. as to what they require. So I'm just not – but, you know, it might be that he's trying to clean up a little bit of what's going on in the name of the state. And certainly something happened – seemed to happen before the, the their meeting because the, government, the U.S. government was unusually – vociferous and threat of sanctions. We saw this Ellen Nakashima story that you referred to was about um, Chinese hackers being arrested before the visit, so that seems like there's a bit of a fig leaf. So I was very skeptical. I've been skeptical for a long time about U.S. threats of sanctions for what would have been years and years of complaints about billions and billions of dollars of commercial losses, because every time they threaten, nothing seems to happen. Um, for a lot of reasons, for a lot of self-interested reasons, I think. But here, there seems to have been something that something more than usual happened because um, both the arrests and and that statement of the norm was a little bit unusual. I still, having said that, I'm still very skeptical. I'm with Clapper on this. I don't think that the Chinese are going to. I don't see any reason why they have an incentive. It's not clear what we've threatened them with. Why they have an incentive to stop stealing commercial secrets that they deem to be 
in their commercial interests. I, I, I think that's that's right. I fully expect them to uh, keep trying to do it, although, frankly, their contribution to cyber espionage has been the, uh, I, I once said, uh, when the Americans and the Israelis and the Russians talk about Chinese cyber espionage, it's like a uh, a convention of cat burglars talking about a guy who does smash and grabs with a Chrysler through the plate glass window of jewelry stores. Uh, they, they just can't believe that these guys aren't getting caught and that they're making more money than uh, than the cat burglars. Uh, um, and yeah. this this will push the uh, the Chinese toward a cat burglar model. Maybe we'll see. I just think it's very very hard to know. I just I think it's very hard to know and and. Something I know that you wanted to talk about this this threat that the the renewed threat of sanctions in the last week that there was that FT story about um, oh Chinalco and threatening. yeah Chinalco yeah that suggests to me that if sanctions are still on the table and if they're going forward with those that that at least is another so- a sign pointing in the other direction it's very hard to tell actually what's going on but that's a sign it seems to me to point in the other direction against some kind of uh, agreement going forward. Yeah, I, I I think the sunniest interpretation of this is that uh, she looked at this and said, well, this is just a, a a narrower version of what we've already said, which is that we condemn cyber espionage. Of course, I can sign up to it, but that when he right. did it, he was he was essentially uh, joining the United States and saying this is illegitimate and leaving himself without much of a principled objection. If the U.S. says, well, we caught somebody benefiting from uh, commercial cyber espionage, and we're going to impose sanctions not on the uh, People's Republic of China, but on this company because it was complicit. Uh, uh, and so uh, it allows the U.S. to impose sanctions that will really hurt uh, but avoid a confrontation with China. That would be the, that would be, uh, the best outcome, I think, of this whole thing. But I think that the, the the Chinese could have always said that even before this agreement, and, and the Americans could have said that as well. I don't think China's principled argument is going to go away because of this agreement, because it, it had before adhered to a broader principle about no commercial theft at all and simply denied the facts. And in terms of the claims that the United States has attribution for high Chinese officials and the like, I I have no doubt that that's true, but a big challenge here is making the evidence public. And um, when they start to do attribution, not just behind the government's walls of secrecy, but in public, that's when I think this stuff can start to have more of an effect. But I don't see them rushing to do that. So you've been an enthusiast for uh, declassifying more stuff generally, uh, sort of in the wake of Snowden saying, you know, the lesson we've learned is that this stuff doesn't stay classified and uh, we ought to open up uh, the uh, intelligence community's activities more. So I would have thought that you'd be in favor of doing the attribution and then disclosing more about how we did it. Uh, Well, I am all things equal. I'm I'm just skeptical that we can. I mean, I do think I'm not certainly not against government secrecy, and I do think, and I, you might agree with me, I'm not sure that it's hard to deny that the government is excessively secretive just because of the nature of the organization and could disclose more. And I do think that disclosures are increasingly inevitable given all the porousness of government and the, and the porousness of, of cyber. Um, in, in theory, I'm in favor of disclosing more, but I don't 
purport to understand what the, what the kind of losses are from, from disclose and what, what you have to disclose in terms of means and methods to be able to do that public attribute. I have a feeling that to the extent that certainly if you have a human intelligence on the ground that's helping you to, to do attribution, that's very hard to disclose, and some of the technical means are very hard to disclose. But, but was, you know, I, you know I, I, the, this is all true. And yet, I am struck by the fact that we know quite well that the Chinese are in our networks, have been in our networks, are coming back into our networks, uh, and so that we know that that's their source, that's their method, uh, breaking into our uh, computers and stealing our secrets, uh, and yet that doesn't actually help us stop them. And so it, it, it has occurred to me, and I've said this a few times, that uh, if we were to announce... Uh, well, we went into your network and we found these documents, which were stolen from Alcoa on Chanelco's uh, uh, servers, uh, and so we conclude from that that you were the recipients of the stolen documents. Uh, um, uh, Chanelco would then know that the United States government was capable of breaking into their network. Uh, big whoop! Uh, they probably already know that, uh, and so I wonder if there's really just how classified that uh, method really is. As long as you don't get into the details. Well, I don't. I, I actually think you have to get into the details to prove it. Chinooka will have exactly the reaction you just said. They would deny it, and the United States would assert it. This is what happened with the North Korean att- uh, attribution. Uh, everyone was deeply skeptical that the United States was actually able to attribute uh, to North Korea when North Korea denied it. I, I, you know, I but I you know couldn't I. It wouldn't be hard to imagine. Uh, finding an email where one Chinalco, and I'm, we're just picking on Chinalco because they were in the story and, and, uh, Alcoa was a victim in the, uh, uh, the indictments, but, uh, it wouldn't be a, a surprise if one Chinalco, uh, exec is sending an email to another saying, hey, some good stuff here, uh, take a look at that. And then you, you release the email and you release the attachment and you say, this is what we found. Now, somebody could say, oh, that's faked. But, you know, at some point you say, you know, if that's the best you can come up with, uh, we're to ignore your objection. So I'm not sure which side you're arguing, but I agree with I agree with both of those things. I, I don't see why we couldn't. I don't understand why we couldn't disclose evidence of that sort, especially if it's the type of stuff that we may have gotten through any number of means. Um, and I don't understand why there hasn't been more public evidence in favor of shaming and, and showing that we know what they're doing. But on the other hand, uh, what would that accomplish? I mean, unless it's going to be backed up by uh, economic sanctions or something painful. Well, you know, I don't think accomplish very much. Unless here's where it would accomplish something. Here's where that's going to be important. Just for shaming companies for stealing things, I don't think so. Where attribution like that's going to be important is if we, if it ever goes from espionage into something more serious. And when we're when there was talk of uh, retaliating against North Korea, the question was, well, what is your actual evidence for doing this? Attribution, public attribution, and public proof. I think it becomes much more important in that context. So I do think you can, you know, the the OFAC program that the Treasury has, which is an empty program, nobody's been uh, sanctioned, is aimed at com- companies like Chinalco, if Chinalco actually is benefiting from uh, corporate cyber espionage. Uh, and the companies that are most likely to benefit from stealing secrets from Western companies are companies that want to compete with those Western companies in the United States, among other places. So they will actually, unlike the People's Liberation Army, have assets and uh, personnel that are subject to U.S. jurisdiction. So I actually think you can hurt them with sanctions that could be based on classified information, because Treasury can rely on that, uh, tomorrow. 
No, I agree. I completely agree, and I think those sanctions would be painful. But then we get to the point where I think the United States has always stepped back. You always have the State Department and the Commerce Department coming in and saying, well, what about all of our other relations in China? What is this going to do with our our broader strategic relations with China? And what's going to happen to U.S. firms doing business in China who are desperate for those markets and to expand in those markets? I mean, if we ratchet up, you know, there's a cost to us. Uh, imposing sanctions like that, which is, I think, why we've always hesitated. Maybe we've gotten to the point, it seems like the government's gotten to the point where it's finally going to start imposing them. I agree that it could cause pain to state-owned companies uh, that, that do business globally. But then the question becomes, what will the Chinese do to U.S. firms and U.S. interests? And that's where it becomes tough, I think. Well, and, and it wouldn't, it, it's pretty hard to function as a, a, a company in China without running afoul of a very aggressive interpretation of their espionage laws, uh, as uh, a number of Westerners have discovered when they uh, started collecting what seemed to be public or quasi-public information about the wrong guy. Uh, so yeah, you could see, uh, um, uh, espionage prosecutions of U.S. companies in China, or or just crackdowns on and access to markets and regulations that make it hard to do business there and demands that are impossible for U.S. firms to make. I think the U.S. you know U.S. economic interests have a lot to lose from ratcheting up sanctions against Chinese, which is always why I assume we've hesitated to do so because the type of sanctions you're talking about. They could have put on the table many years ago, and they just have hesitated. Yeah, what, what, what's been happening, you're absolutely right, and, and the way in which that uh, concern makes itself felt is lobbying by U.S. companies with very large business interests uh, in China. Right. Uh, uh, the problem for China is that the number of those companies that see a bright future in China is declining, especially in the uh, uh, tech sector. Uh, only, yeah. only Apple probably sees a bright future for itself uh, in China. Yeah. Uh, and that means that there's less and less pressure uh, to avoid uh, 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 sanctions in the U.S. Uh, because in an odd way, China's already sort of Pre-retaliating, uh, they've got any number of reasons to want to, to, want to keep uh, American companies uh, market share to a minimum, uh, and they're they're already doing what they can. It's not clear they could do more if they were mad at us than they're already doing out of self-interest from a national security point of view. I think they could do more if, they, if the stakes got high enough. But I agree with you. Uh, on the other hand, um, you know the, the scale of United States, the billions and tens of billions and hundreds of billions of dollars of theft. We're going to have to do a lot of sanctions on Chinese companies to make that uh, not economically in the Chinese in China's interest. I mean, this, uh, sanctions on one company, I agree it could cause pain. I agree it would get China's attention. It's not clear it's up to the scale of the problem. So let me ask you about this this other attack uh, that I I'm I'm uh, I harp on a little uh, because I'm so astonished by it, uh, uh, but uh, uh, which has not gotten much of a response from the U.S., which is the attack on GitHub, where uh, uh, China, you know, basically used American computers to launch DDoS attacks at an American institution because the American institution was making the New York Times available to Chinese nationals in China. Um, right. and, and the U.S. response to that has been barely a shrug. Uh, uh, nobody's done anything uh, about that or threatened anything. And uh, uh, in contrast to all the attention to cyber uh, uh, espionage, uh, uh, what do you make of that? 
I have to say it's puzzling um, because it is, you know, it, it definitely, it, it's technically a cyber attack and it seems clearly from the news reports to be attributed to China and the United States have not seen any real response to it. Um, and of course, failure to respond just invites more of that stuff. Um, I don't have a good explanation for it other than that there's this general sense, there's this general fear of sanctioning China and the cyberspace, whether it's commercial espionage or denial of service attacks. There's this general fear, I think, of what retaliation looks like. But why, why they're ignoring the GitHub attack and making a big deal out of commercial espionage? I mean, it's hard to see what the explanation is other than the economic interests lined up behind the two entities. Yeah, and it may be that GitHub isn't encouraging uh, uh, a response, and in the end, it didn't bring them down. Uh, uh, but I, I have said in other contexts, I said this is an administration that has very badly wanted to write or create international norms on cyber attacks. Uh, uh, and ironically, by their lack of action on things like this, they are creating cyber norms, just not the ones that they're talking about. It's the ones that people yeah, are determined from watching what they're doing. Um, so I what, agree, but just, let me just add one thing on that, Stuart. If I could just yep. always keep in mind, and I, I know you do, but you know, in, in a way, what GitHub does is is an attack on Chinese sovereignty, and the China China sees it that way, and. But we, we don't think enough about how what we're doing inside their networks goes to the core of their concerns in the same way that what they're doing to our commercial firms go to the core of our concerns. And I'm certainly not defending their very different concerns than our concerns, but if you put that in perspective, Maybe the United States thought this one wasn't worth fighting. I don't know. You know, I think that could be, or it, it, I, I agree with you that the State Department is continuing down this road of we should, we should find ways to, 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 uh, send packets through the Great Firewall without, uh, uh, enabling, without letting the Chinese stop them. Uh, I, and, you know, that's kind of a side project. It's, it's, it's sort of making mischief and feeling good about it, uh, uh, I'm not sure how big an impact it's having, except that it does feed the notion that uh, the U.S. Uh, believes that cyber attacks are fine when it does them uh, and uh, not so good when other people do them. Right, exactly. It looks like that, that's the way the rest of the world sees issues like this. Yeah, uh, and uh, and and we we we're, we're good at seeing it that way too sometimes, but uh, uh, everybody has blind spots uh, where they just think the rest of the world should agree with them, and uh, if it doesn't, it's crazy. You know, that's sort of but, the. But I really, th- I really think, I really think in this context, all the polls I've seen, uh, including a study I think you did several years ago, show that. When you ask various types of internet operators and government officials and the like around the country about who the biggest threat is in terms of cyber offense, whether it's espionage or attack, the United States is always near, if not at the top of the list. Uh, that, that was, again, there are many. Didn't you do a study like that? I, I did ago? do a study like that, uh, and that is exactly the the result. This was pre Snowden, uh, but also pre-revelations uh, about uh, the scope of Chinese uh, espionage. Uh, right. And China was, right. a, was a near second, but, uh, yeah, the U.S. Was, was listed first. Yeah. And I think that we don't keep that in mind enough about how, and this is not justifying anything that the Chinese do to us, it's just trying to helping us to understand the way our adversaries see what we're doing. Because we always, in the press, we often talk, in the U.S. press, there's often discussion as if 
others are doing bad to us and less discussion of what we're doing to them that seems bad in their eyes. Yes. Um, well, and, and when we pay attention, there's plenty of people doing much the same uh, uh, thing to us, imposing their values through the um, global dependence of uh, U.S. companies on their markets. Uh, uh, right. The Europeans are, I mean, the, the what we've been talking about, the safe harbor, this is an effort by the uh, um, European Court of Justice and the European Data Protection Authorities to say that Section 702 program that the U.S. loves so much and that has caught so many terrorists uh, we think it's a violation of human rights, and we are going to punish American companies until it stops. Uh, and you know they're they're going to create a great deal of pain for a substantial number of years over that issue. I completely agree. I think that's exactly what's going on. I think you can see the original data data privacy initiative as kind of doing the same for privacy and. In a way, it worked. U.S. firms kind of bowed down in some sense to to the European conception of privacy, at least to, to a large degree, large, further than they wanted to. And now I think basically the same thing is going on with regard to uh, intelligence collection. Um, I think this is a huge issue, and I, I think the United States government it seems like it has been slow to respond to this. It's a tricky issue, obviously, as Tim Edgar has been writing on, on, on lawfare, um, Europeans are entirely hypocritical in all of this because they're doing this type of collection almost certainly with many fewer um, constraints and elements of judicial review than the United States has. But um, I think (laughs) that's that's sort of a dog dog bites man story. But yes, yes, exactly. (laughs) But but I think what you said is exactly right. I think this is basically a challenge to the 702 program, among others. Even though I agree with Mike that there are ways to Mike Vadis that there are ways to read that decision narrowly. I think that the larger context is a fight over 702, and we'll see what happens. I mean, it's going to really heighten the tension between uh, the NSA and intelligence collection and the um, the um, the commercial sector, which wants, obviously, to um, be able to expand into these markets with as little penalties they can find. Yeah. I, so what do you think uh, the U.S.? could or should be doing about these intrusions into its sovereignty. We've got uh, we've got this effort to reform one of our most successful uh, um, uh, intelligence programs by getting rid of it or uh, substantially hampering it. We've got the the right to be forgotten, which uh, essentially says that the French government can censor the search results that Americans rely on. Uh, uh, the Canil has said, yeah, Google.com has got to be... Uh, uh, censored in accordance with European or French, uh, uh, standards for the right to be forgotten. Uh, what should the U.S. be doing about these, you know, pretty substantial, uh, uh, derogations from what we think are fundamental rights or fundamental national survival tools? Right. So first of all, I, I think it's a huge problem and I, I, I like the way, I think that the safe harbor decision and the, the way that the right to be forgotten is being enclosed basically um, enforced globally by seems like the French are demanding and others might demand that they Google not just remove certain uh, search terms or certain searches from its European search sites but from, that remove them globally so they're not available anywhere, including in the United States. It's the same basic phenomenon of 
U.S. the, uh, the Europeans have leverage because U.S. firms want to do business there, and once they're doing business there, the Europeans can take advantage of that to impose what as much the, this, whatever severe regulations they want. And then it ends up meaning that the Europeans essentially decide for the United States what the right level of regulation is. What should the United States do? That's a big question, and I don't have a complete answer. I think that it's going to, it requires all of the tools of the government, diplomatic and on the diplomatic front, on the intelligence front. We obviously, the problem is, is that, um, the Europeans benefit hugely from 702, obviously. And the leaders of those countries know that, but they're in a democracy and they have a domestic constituencies that don't like these programs. So I don't have an easy answer. I don't think that sanctions or threatened, threatened, threatening to retaliate is the right way to deal with this. I think it takes a full-blown effort that I haven't seen the government doing yet in public to explain the 702 program, to explain how it's helped keep Europe safe, to explain the safeguards on it, to explain how the safeguards are much more um, protective of individual privacy than analogous European standards. I think it takes a lot of you know, pre- pressure and threats. I think it's a full government action, and I think we'll see it now. I think that, that this ruling has probably woken the government up, I imagine, or at least I hope. So I, I do remember that when the Europeans thought that we were imposing on their sovereignty by conducting investigation, antitrust investigations of their national champions who were p- fixing prices in the national interest of, uh, you know, France or Australia or what have you, uh, yeah. uh, they adopted blocking statutes that said you may yeah. not conduct investigations on our soil. Uh, our companies may not cooperate with those investigations. If you sue them and impose uh, damages or fines, we will uh, extract the fines from you. Uh, uh, and so, you know, the U.S. has never done that. Uh, but it's a well-honed uh, uh, tactic against U.S. Uh, uh, legal measures. Uh, maybe we should say, yes, you can enforce the right to be forgotten as long as you don't mind us selling the uh, uh, the French embassy to pay the fine. Or by um, finding French companies that are involved in, in the enforcement. I mean, it's hard to know who to impose it against. But I agree, Stuart, there are all sorts of steps that we could take to retaliate against the extraterritorial enforcement of uh, France's or Europe's um, right to be forgotten. There are all sorts of steps we can take, but that gets, I, I doubt that we're going to do that. I don't think it'll be a feasible step. I'm not sure how effective it will be. Um, and ultimately, you know, they do have to, our companies are doing business there and they have control over them. The 15, this is very much the, the, the right to be forgotten going extraterritorial is very much like the Yahoo case 15 years ago where, um, where the French told, told Yahoo that it couldn't put Nazi goods for sale on its site in France and Yahoo's told it to take a hike and then they, the French issued fines against Yahoo and it got in line. Yep. There might be, it, it's conceivable that there are technical means, that there are ways of filtering out in Europe and not allowing Europeans perhaps through some mechanism to access Google US. There might be technical means. I'm sure that there are technical means to alleviate the problem. And when push comes to shove, that might be the way this has worked out. And even if the technical means aren't perfect, if they're good enough, that's basically what worked in the Yahoo case and it may work here. So I think that there's lots that's going to happen before we get into the sanctions game. But I imagine that if, in fact, the Europeans demand that Google censor on a global basis, that will get the attention of a lot of people in the United States, and I can imagine sanctions pressure growing. 
I'm not sure clawback stacks is the right way to go. I just don't know how that would work here. I'm not sure you're clawing back again. Right. Uh, that, fair enough. Listen, this was this was terrific. This was a great uh, conversation. Uh, I always ask my guests if they've got any uh, upcoming speeches, books. Uh, you've always got an upcoming book, uh, maybe three. Uh, uh, but anything that you'd like to tell our listeners to be watching for uh, in the near future? Uh, not really. Um, Lawfare and the Hoover Institution are starting a new um, book review series, uh, chatting with authors about their new books uh, and in Hoover's lovely offices in Washington. And I'll be interviewing Charlie Savage in, on, I think, November 10th about his new book on the Obama administration and the war on terrorism and the legal aspects of the war on terrorism. So that's the next thing I have going on in your part of the world. Oh, that'll be fun. Uh, that'll be fun. Uh, and I know you're you're working on uh, a bunch of books, uh, including one outside your usual area of, uh, uh, right. of uh, expertise. I'm writing a book about uh, Jimmy Hoffa, believe it or not, which is a little far afield from me. I have a family connection to the disappearance. I kind of grew up, believe it or not, in the midst of the post-Hoffa disappearance um, government investigation, and I'm basically telling that story and some, and some of the aftermath. That's cool. I, 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 uh, yeah, I read uh, Vendetta, I, uh, which was about uh, Bobby Kennedy and uh, Jimmy Hoffa, and it is a, it's a different Washington, and certainly uh, Bobby Kennedy is something other than the great uh, uh, civil liberties hero that uh, he's presumed to be uh, uh, in the course of that investigation. That's certainly true. You can't look at what Bobby Kennedy did on the McClellan Committee in the late 50s and his extraordinarily uh, aggressive prosecutorial zeal and surveillance abuse in the early 60s and think of him as much of a civil libertarian. But maybe that came later in the 60s. Yeah, well, uh, you know, as 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 uh, everybody started smoking dope, everybody became a civil libertarian. Uh, <laughs> I was only six or seven. <laughs> All right, Jack, thank you so much for uh, uh, appearing on the program. It's been great to have you. And sure, thank-, thank, thank you for inviting me. I love the program, and, and thank you for inviting me. All right, sounds good. Uh, and thanks also to Jason uh, Weinstein, Maury Shank, and Michael Vadis. Uh, as always, the Cyber Law Podcast is open to feedback. Uh, questions and uh, suggestions for interview candidates should go to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave a message by phone. We're, I've given up on, on creative abuse. Uh, we've gotten none, but I'll read it again. 202-862-5785. This has been episode 84 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. And coming up, we'll be joined by Mike Hayden, former NSA and CIA director, Mikko Hipponen uh, of F-Secure, uh, uh, the Finnish security company, uh, Ari Schwartz, uh, hot from years of service in the Obama administration, Cyberbeat, and Adam Cozy, who will be talking about uh, our favorite attack, the GitHub attack, uh, and how it was carried out. Uh, we hope you'll join us uh, for all of those as we once again, and provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.